You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read together verses 1 through 3, and then we will pray together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, as your people, we come to hear today to hear from you in this book. You have the words of life. You have written the words of life for us in this book. And it is that that we hunger for, not the mere words of men. Not men's thoughts, not men's philosophies, not man's religion, but your word and only your word. And we pray that you would feed us today through that word. May your spirit be our teacher. We have the confidence that when your word is rightly preached, that your voice is truly heard. And may that be the case here this morning as we endeavor to look into these things. May we be edified and equipped and taught today together by your spirit. Be here present with your people, we ask for this end, that Christ may be glorified here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are starting this morning to look at John chapter 3. We finished chapter 2 last week. And I think that there is a tendency in our minds when we are reading through passages of Scripture, we come to the end of a chapter, the beginning of a new chapter, and oftentimes we begin to think in our minds that there is a very hard break between chapters. At least I do. I get to the end of one chapter, and in my mind, I go like this. Can I put it over here? And then I begin afresh a new chapter. And oftentimes... Maybe you don't do this, but oftentimes I have to remind myself, actually constantly I have to remind myself, that's not how the Bible was originally written. The chapter divisions were added years later for convenience with referencing things, but with the exception of the book of Psalms, the books were written as whole books. And sometimes the chapter divisions serve the good purpose of sort of setting aside text by subject or topic or even geographical location, as you sometimes find in the Gospels, And the chapter divisions oftentimes can be very helpful. But there are occasions when the chapter divisions are not helpful at all, and the division between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the Gospel of John is one of those examples of a chapter division that is not at all helpful. And I say that not because I expect you to erase the chapter 3 in your Bible and start renumbering the verses, but I just want you to be aware that as we move into the next chapter that we are really continuing a theme that we looked at last week. Chapter 2 doesn't the verses at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, don't really conclude chapter 2 as much as they introduce chapter 3. There is, between the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3, a logical connection and a chronological connection. You'll notice first the chronological connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Everything that we saw in chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple, sorry, not everything, uh, from verse 13 on through the end of chapter 2, The cleansing of the temple, Jesus' confrontation in the temple with the Jews where they demanded a sign, and he said, you're not going to get any sign from me except the 
uh, uh, you're going to destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, the sign of the resurrection. That whole episode happened in Jerusalem during Jesus' first Passover that he celebrated in Jerusalem after the beginning of his public ministry. Then you have at the end of chapter 2 the reference that while he was in Jerusalem, he was doing more of these signs and people were believing on him. But Jesus wasn't committing himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. And so those signs mentioned in verse 23 were signs that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem during the Passover and that one week feast of unleavened bread at the end of the the Passover celebration. Then in chapter 3, we begin with Nicodemus and this conversation with Nicodemus happens In Jerusalem, during that one-week period of time, during the Passover celebration, possibly just a couple of days or the evening of, maybe even, the cleansing of the temple. So this happens, the events in chapter 3, this conversation with Nicodemus, happens right on the heels of the cleansing of the temple and the events in chapter 2. That's the chronological connection. Then there's a logical connection. At the end of chapter 2, we found that many people were believing on Jesus, believing on his name, when they saw the signs. And as long as they were seeing the signs, they were, quote-unquote, believing. But by believing, we don't mean that they had saving faith. It was a shallow faith. It was an inadequate faith. It was a a sign-based faith. As long as they saw him doing the signs, then they were believing. But their belief was the same type of belief the demons have. The demons believe and tremble. It was an intellectual assent. But it wasn't an embracing of Christ for all that he was as he offered himself to them as Savior, as Lord, as Messiah, and as King. It was a very shallow faith, which is why John says in verses 24 and 25, Jesus, on his part, was not committing himself to any of them because he knew their faith. He knew the nature of their faith. It was a shallow faith and an inadequate faith. Well, do you want an example of just such a man who was believing on Jesus as long as he was seeing the signs, whose understanding of Jesus was completely inadequate to save him? Nicodemus is a case in point. Nicodemus is one of the type of men mentioned at the end of chapter 2. That's the logical connection. So as we begin chapter 3, we begin chapter 3 understanding that Nicodemus is the type of person introduced at the end of chapter 2. He was a man who, as long as Jesus was performing the signs, he was believing. And he believed a lot of orthodox things concerning Jesus, but his belief was not sufficient to save him. His belief was shallow, it was inadequate, it was an intellectual assent. And an intellectual assent only... And Jesus was not committing himself to Nicodemus because he knew what was in Nicodemus. And you're going to see today in the first three verses how Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus. And he demonstrates that supernatural knowledge. So starting chapter 3, I need to introduce a little bit, sort of um, a little bit of chapter 3. And then we're going to look at the first three verses. Chapter 3 is a familiar chapter. And I understand that going into it, that if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you're familiar, at least in the general details, with John chapter 3, right? The need to be born again. Uh, You've read that. You understand Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You understand he came to him by night. He asked him a question. And you've read all of this. It's got familiar verses in chapter 3, like chapter 3, verse 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Today, during the Super Bowl sometime, you're likely to see that guy who gets into almost every major sporting event who has JN3 colon 3 on a big banner in the stands. You ever seen him, the banner man? And he's got the big JN3 colon 3 on the banner. I don't know how he gets into every football game, but he's always there, and I don't know who he is. But he's always got John 3 3 there. In fact, if you, and I think this is the case, if, if my memory serves me, there is a, a sign somewhere between Highway 95 and Rathdrum on the highway that connects that. Is that 41? Not 41. 
the, the paved road that connects Highway 95 and Raftram there at Garwood, there's a sign or a mailbox or a window or something at one of those houses on the south side of that road that has JN 3 colon 3 on it. John 3, 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot say the kingdom of God. And of course, in John chapter 3, is one of the most familiar of all Bible verses. There are even pagans who can quote this from memory, John 3.16, which is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the gospel message boiled down in its irreducible, irreducible minimum. It doesn't get any more basic or more central than John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you're probably familiar with John 3, verses 19 to 21. Those are familiar verses as well. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Another very good evangelistic verse. And actually, I wish that Bannerman would put number six at the end of his three colon three on his banner because three verse 36 is an even better evangelistic verse than three verse three. Chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a wonderful evangelistic verse, isn't it? So chapter 3 has got a lot of familiar content, a lot of familiar verses. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. It's actually the first discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. You have the upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 15. There's the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. The light of the world discourse in John chapter 8. The good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. We have all of these discourses that Jesus gives, which is a lengthened, in, a lengthened discussion with somebody or teaching on a subject. John chapter 3, this conversation with Nicodemus, is the first discourse that John records for us. And it is a discourse about how one might have life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Then he says at the end of the Gospel of John, these things are written so that you might believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God and that believing you might have life in His name. So it's appropriate that the very first discourse, the very first teaching that we get from the lips of Jesus is all to a person who desperately needs not life about how one gets eternal life. It's a very unique discourse in that it was given to one man, not to a multitude, not to a crowd, not even to Jesus' disciples, but to whom? To a Pharisee. Now that is interesting, because if you know anything about the Pharisees, then you know that in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees are Jesus' primary opponents, His primary adversaries. They are the ones who set themselves against Him constantly, trying to trick Him, trying to catch Him, trying to uh, get Him hooked up on some technicality, arguing with Him, debating with Him, opposing Him, calling Him names, and, and slandering Him to the crowds. The Pharisees were His primary adversaries. Here is a very unique discussion that Jesus has, and it's not hostile, it's not aggressive at all, with a Pharisee. And of all of Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees in all of the Gospels, this is the only one that I can think of off the top of my head that is not overtly hostile. And it's with a man named Nicodemus, who's not just a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So it's sort of a unique discourse. And the last thing that sort of sets it apart is that the subject matter in John chapter 3 is really foundational or, or fundamental to the Christian life and faith. Listen, you can be ignorant about a lot of things and still be a believer. You can be completely ignorant as to the doctrine of election and how that all cashes out. And I've never even heard of that. You can be ignorant about the doctrine of baptism, its means, its manner, its purpose. You can know absolutely nothing about future events, anything regarding eschatology, and still be saved. 
But if you do not understand by experience what is discussed in John chapter 3, then you are still on the broad road that leads to destruction. Because unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This subject in John chapter 3 is at the heart of Christianity. To be ignorant of what regeneration is, what being born again is, is to be ignorant of what it means to be saved. And to be ignorant of what it means to be saved and how one is saved makes you ignorant in your lostness. You can be ignorant about a lot of things in the Christian life and still be saved, but you cannot be ignorant about this. John chapter 3 introduces us to the subject of what's called regeneration. Regeneration, you could call it being born again. You could call it regeneration. You could call it being washed by the Spirit of God, being given new life, being made a new creation, being a new creature in Christ. There's a lot, being given a heart of flesh as opposed to a heart of stone. There's a lot of ways to describe this. But if what is, Jesus says is true in John chapter 3 is not true of you, if you've not been born again, then you don't have life. I don't care if you're baptized as an infant. I don't care if you've worked your whole life in the church. I don't care if you attend here every Sunday. I don't care what you do. All of those things may be good in and of themselves, but if you've never been born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. You will never see it, let alone enter it, because you're not in it. You must be born again. Now, much more could be said just by way of introduction, but if I do that, we're not going to have time to look at the first three verses. So let's dive in at chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man, that is a man described at the end of chapter 2, remember, who was believing on Jesus as long as he was seeing the signs, But Jesus was not committing himself to them. Nicodemus is one such man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is a name that means victor over the people. It was a Greek name, a Hellenistic name. It wasn't uncommon in those days for somebody to have a Jewish name or Hebrew name and also a Greek name. Nicodemus is a Greek name. It doesn't indicate that he was a Greek. He was a Jew because he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. So he wouldn't have been a Greek. He wouldn't have been a Hellenist. He was an Orthodox Jew in every way, but he had a Greek name, at least We only know him by his Greek name, Nicodemus. One of the challenges that you and I have anytime we read the Scripture or study the Bible together is to try to listen to and hear the words of Scripture the way that the original audience would have heard the words of Scripture. And one of my jobs, challenges actually, is to try and take what was what was understandable in that context at that time and allow you to hear it the same way that they would have heard it. In other words, we have a 21st century Western mindset, culture, and oftentimes we read passages like this and we fail to catch the significance of what's being said and to hear it as people back then would have heard it. So what I want to do today, I want to describe to you what a Pharisee was and the way that Nicodemus thought so that when you hear what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, you'll be able to hear it the way Nicodemus would have heard it. Because it has an entirely sweeping and radical significance to Nicodemus that you and I almost take for granted and and sort of brush over. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. In Judaism, in Jewish religion, there were two major sects. There were the Sadducees and there were the Pharisees. The Sadducees were over on your left. They were sort of the theological liberals, the left of the spectrum. The Pharisees were the polar opposites over on the theological right of the spectrum. The Sadducees denied all things supernatural. Now, there were other little sects in Judaism, zealots, etc. But for all intents and purposes, there were two major parties. They were a two-party system. Liberals and conservatives, Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees denied all things supernatural. They were the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe in spirits. 
Didn't believe in demons. Didn't believe in angels. Didn't believe in any sort of afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection to come. They didn't believe that God was sovereign. They didn't believe in eternal life. Any, they were basically the materialists of the day. Material is all that exists, and all that exists is material things. There is no afterlife. You say, this sounds really weird to be a religious group with that type of theology, doesn't it? But they exist all over the country today and even call themselves Christians. There's a guy who is a professed atheist who's the pastor of a Christian denomination, a Christian church. So it happens today. Those were the liberals. Denied all things supernatural. On the other end of the spectrum was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the Orthodox and the theological conservatives. Everything that a Sadducee denied, Pharisee affirmed. The Pharisees did believe in spirits, did believe in demons and angels, did believe in an afterlife, did confess the resurrection of the dead. They did believe that God was sovereign. They believed all of the Old Testament law and the prophets. The Sadducees sort of picked and chose what they believed out of all of the Old Testament books. So those are the two major parties. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And by the way, most of the priests in the priesthood were Sadducees. Caiaphas, the high priest, most of the priests were, belonged to the Sadducee party. And it was the Sadducees who ruled in the temple. They really controlled the temple district. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so he's a conservative, an orthodox um, gentleman. Pharisees, the word Pharisee basically means separate or set apart. And it means to be separated. If you were Pharisaical, it meant you were separated. And the Pharisees grew out of the intertestamental period, that is, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament period which ended basically with the books Ezra and Nehemiah, 400 years before Christ. During that 400-year period, you had a sort of a shift among Jews to become very Hellenized, very Greek in their thinking, and sort of adopt some pagan practices and some pagan ways of doing things. And the Pharisees were a sect that kind of grew up out of that and said, no, 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 we need to guard the pure religion and the pure worship of God. So they were very conservative, and they began to separate themselves from all pagan practices. And Pharisaism started out very good, with very good intentions, and that is to preserve the pure worship of the one true God and the orthodox doctrine in all the Old Testament. Very good intentions, very noble purpose, and a good thing. So they separated themselves, they became the Pharisees. By the time of Jesus, their separation had grown to the point where they no longer were really for the common man, but they were sort of looked down on the common man. And their separation went from separating true religious worship from all things pagan and Greek and uh, and uh, ungodly and unholy and impure to separating themselves from everybody else. So the Pharisees started to look down on other people, and in their attempts to preserve pure worship, they actually corrupted pure worship by becoming so legalistic. So that by the time Jesus got on the scene... They viewed Jesus as an enemy because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't trained in the schools. He didn't walk around displaying his righteousness. Pharisaism, they began to add all kinds of little legalistic restrictions and minutia of traditions on the law so that as somebody tried to observe the law, they had all of these ways that you could observe the law, all of these details that they added in an effort to keep things pure. And in an effort to keep things pure, they added all of these things to it. And when you add something to something, is it any... Is it pure any longer? No. They had added all of these traditions and man-made requirements, and thus they had corrupted pure worship, true religion and the worship of God, which is why when God in the flesh showed up on the scene, they hated Him, and He regarded them as an enemy, and that's why He calls them whitewashed tombs, and some of the strongest words Jesus ever used were directed at the Pharisees. Nicodemus is such a separatist. He's a Pharisee. 
And in the mind of a Pharisee, salvation was gained through outward works of righteousness, keeping the law. If you walked up to the Sanhedrin and you picked any Pharisee, any one of them, Gamaliel, Nicodemus, any one of the Pharisees, and you asked them, how can I have eternal life? They would have said, keep the law. All the traditions, all of the commandments, all of the Mishnah, all of the commentary, everything that our traditions and our law says to do, you keep all of that and you'll have eternal life. You have to do the righteous works of the law and you will be just or righteous in the sight of God if you work hard enough and keep yourself separate enough and maintain your own purity and work on your own righteousness, then you can have eternal life. Then you can see the kingdom of God. That was the Pharisee's answer. And such was Nicodemus's thinking. Now, Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee, he was also a ruler of the Jews, a phrase that means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling and the only ruling body over the nation of Israel in all things pertaining to their civil law and to their religious law. And Rome, even though they were subject to Rome, Rome gave the Sanhedrin a certain degree of authority. They had the power to make arrests, they had the power to conduct trials, to bring charges against people, and to punish. The only thing they couldn't do was execute somebody. Capital punishment, capital crimes, they were not allowed to execute that, except under very few certain uh, limitations. Then they were allowed to execute people. So uh, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, 70 people, 70 men, mostly Sadducees, but a minor sect of them was were Pharisees. So Nicodemus is one of those. The Sanhedrin, oh, by the way, Nicodemus, and this is just an interesting connection. This is the stuff that goes on in my mind. Nicodemus would have known Gamaliel. You know who Gamaliel was, the great the great rabbi, the great teacher in the nation of Israel? Gamaliel had a student. You may have heard of him. His name is Saul of Tarsus, a, a very zealous, very ambitious, very righteous, very legalistic, very zealous Pharisee. It's very likely that Nicodemus would have known of, if not known, Saul of Tarsus, who would have been in Jerusalem, And I wonder in my mind if Saul of Tarsus was in Jerusalem when Jesus cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. There's no reason he wouldn't have been there. He was there observing the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It seems reasonable to me that Saul of Tarsus would have been there, that he would have known that. Pharisees were a close-knit group of guys. These men would have known each other around town. So that's Nicodemus, a, a member of the Pharisees. Now, it says that he came to Jesus by night. came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus kind of gets the short shrift, I think, when people criticize his motives by saying that he came to Jesus by night because he was a coward. Have you ever heard that? Evening time, after the evening meal was eaten, that's when everything sort of settled down for the day. People gathered into their homes, and I can picture Jesus and the disciples sitting around a table and talking about things in somebody's home or an inn of some sort there in Jerusalem. And things have quieted down, and it's dark outside, and there's a knock at the door, and here is a ruler of the Jews wanting to talk with Jesus. This is on the heels of the cleansing of the temple, and the disciples maybe are wondering, what's this about? What's this guy doing? And he comes in and and, uh, sits down at the table and starts up small talk with Jesus and having a conversation with him. Some people say he came by night because he was afraid to be exposed by the daylight. He came at night because he was a coward, and he was afraid that if the rest of the Sanhedrin, the other Pharisees and the Sadducees saw this ruler of the Jews coming to speak to Jesus, they would look down upon him and sort of kick him out of the synagogue. He was afraid of what people think. He thought he was a man pleaser. And so he came under the cloak of darkness as if he said to his wife, Honey, I'm going to 
go down to the corner to the Walgreens and buy some goat milk for breakfast in the morning. I'll be right back. And he sort of ushers out the back door and creeps down the alleys and the side streets and hops over fences with a cloak over his head and knocks on the door and ushers himself in real quick so that nobody sees him. I don't know if Nicodemus was a coward. I don't know that that's the reason why he came at night. There are a couple other good explanations for why it may have been at night. First of all, at night was probably the only time that you could get Jesus alone and have a serious conversation with more than two uninterrupted minutes together. During the day, with all of the busyness of the feast and the Passover and the crowds around him, and every time he does a sign, the crowd gets bigger, and he's teaching and he's talking, and people want to touch him, people want to be with him, people want to hear from him. It may be that Nicodemus saw him in the temple and said, Hey, can I have a few moments with you alone? I need to sit down and discuss something serious with you. It may be that nighttime was the only time that Nicodemus could get away from the busyness of the crowd. It's also possible that Nicodemus came at night because that's when Nicodemus did all of his spiritual study. There was sort of a a, a view among rabbis and among Pharisees that commended anybody who studied in the evenings. That was sort of seen as the best time to study. After the busyness of the day, you sat down, you finished your day by meditation and spiritual study. It may be that that's what Nicodemus was doing. He was involved in spiritual study and meditation, decided he wanted to go see Jesus. I don't necessarily think he was a coward. At the end of the day, we really don't know why Nicodemus came at night, but let's not call him a coward when we really don't know what his motives were. Maybe that he just wanted to be away from the crowd. And nighttime was the best time to do that. He came to talk to Jesus at night, and he says to him, look at verse 2. Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We. Who's he speaking for? I think that there was possibly a, a little group of Pharisees amongst all the Pharisees who saw Jesus and they understood the law and they understood the prophets, and they understood everything about the Old Testament, and they saw what Jesus was doing, and they're saying to themselves, he may be the one. We know for certain, at least, that he's a teacher sent from God. So Nicodemus feels the flexibility, or the freedom at least, to speak on behalf of a group of people. It may be that by saying we, he simply means me, because we do that all the time, don't we? I just did it, didn't I? I really meant I do that all the time. I don't know if you do it or not, but I said we. Sometimes it's easy for I to get lost in we, We speak in terms of we when we really mean I. Somebody comes to you and says, well, we feel. Well, who's the we? Well, uh, it's just a group of us that feel. Well, who's the group of you? It turns out it's them and their dog having a discussion. But they feel and we feel. And we is kind of a way of sort of masking yourself in a group when you want to remain anonymous. Maybe that's what Nicodemus is doing. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus had a certain view of signs, and I want you to notice that first. How does he view signs? Signs in the Old Testament, signs in the New Testament were not just extraordinary displays of strength. They weren't meant to wow the crowds. They weren't intended for their entertainment value. Signs always signified something. They always pointed to something beyond the sign itself. Signs were intended to authenticate the messenger. How would we know when the real Messiah stands up and comes onto the scene? He would do signs like nobody else has ever done. Jesus is doing signs like nobody else has ever done. And by the testimony of those signs, they know that he is a teacher sent from God, that he is the real McCoy, the real deal, and that he those are his divine credentials. His signs are his divine credentials. Same thing with the apostles. That's why the Bible calls signs and wonders the marks of an apostle. How do you know a true apostle from a false apostle? True apostles could do signs like Jesus could do. False apostles could not. Nicodemus knows that Jesus is no imposter. Nicodemus knows that the signs authenticate Jesus 
as a divine messenger. And he is willing to listen to Jesus. But he calls Jesus teacher. Now, is Jesus a teacher? He is, isn't he? But do you notice that Nicodemus's understanding of Jesus is minimalistically true? That is the least that you could say of Jesus and still have it be true. That he was a teacher. He was a teacher, but he was far more than a teacher. Nicodemus is willing to approach Jesus as a peer. He comes to Jesus as one teacher to another teacher. And you can compare Nicodemus's confession to Nathaniel's back in chapter 1 verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There Nathaniel's confession was not just that he was a teacher, but that he was the son of God being in one nature with God himself. And that he was the king of Israel. Nicodemus didn't confess that. Philip said, we have found him of whom Moses and all of the prophets wrote. That is the Messiah, the coming one, the son of David, the king of Israel. Nicodemus comes to him and says, teacher, we know that you are a teacher. That is minimalistically true of Jesus. Is understanding and knowing and confessing Jesus as a teacher sufficient to save you? No, that's woefully short. Woefully short. If your understanding of Jesus is just that he was a good teacher, your understanding of Jesus is not sufficient to save you. You must come to the point of understanding that he is the Son of God, God the Son, come down from heaven. In fact, Jesus is going to correct Nicodemus' understanding of him later on in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, where he says, I'm the Son of Man who has come down from heaven. I descended from heaven. I existed before I came here, and I've come down here, and I am the Son of God, and God has given his only begotten Son so that you might believe in him. And Nicodemus, Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus there, it's not sufficient that you understand me just as a teacher. You have to see me as the divine son who has come down from heaven to pay the price for sin. And it is me that you must believe in. It is me that you must confess. It is me as God the Son, the Son of God, the divine Son, that you must place your faith in if you're going to be saved. A wholly inadequate view of Jesus. But I do have to give Nicodemus this much. His willingness to confess Jesus as a teacher and to see Jesus, uh, to see Jesus on par with himself represents that Nicodemus had overcome a tremendous prejudice even to get to that point. Jesus came from the most despised region in the whole nation, Galilee. He came from one of the most despised towns in one of the most despised regions of the whole nation, that is Nazareth. He didn't come from a Pharisaical family. He didn't he didn't get an education in a Pharisee's school. He wasn't trained at the feet of the great Gamaliel. He had never spent any time as a Pharisee for a Pharisee to be willing to equate this Nazarene as a teacher sent from God. That is overcoming a huge prejudice. Almost no Pharisee would have been willing to admit that that Nazarite could be a teacher sent from God the way that he was a teacher sent from God. So Nicodemus had come a long ways but it was still woefully short of eternal life. Woefully short of eternal life. But Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, that simply means amen, amen, or what I'm about to tell you is the truth. It's something used in the Gospel of John. Every time Jesus is about to say something tremendously profound and important, he introduces it with this. Truly, truly, it's his way of saying, listen up, this is important, get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you say, what does that statement have to do with what Nicodemus said in verse 2? Right? 
In verse 2, he says, we understand you're a teacher sent from God. Nobody can do the signs that you do unless he is from God, unless God is with him. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It almost seems to me as if Jesus sort of jumped right off of the track that Nicodemus was on and got on an entirely different subject because Nicodemus didn't ask, what do I have to do to see the kingdom of God? Nicodemus didn't ask anything about the kingdom of God, didn't even call Jesus a king, didn't mention anything about salvation, didn't mention anything about the new birth, didn't mention anything about the Old Testament prophets that talked about the new birth. None of that was in anything that Nicodemus said, and yet here's Jesus talking about the new birth, salvation, and the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing? What's going on? It goes back to the end of chapter 2 when Jesus, when John says, he knew what was in man. Jesus, in verse 3, is not responding to what Nicodemus said. He is responding to what Nicodemus is thinking. Jesus knew his heart, and he knew what was on Nicodemus's heart, and Jesus cut right to the issue, which was Nicodemus's need for a new birth. This is Jesus's demonstration that he knew what was in man. Everything Nicodemus said was small talk and it wasn't the issue. Nicodemus knew that. Jesus knew that. And Jesus pushed it all aside and said, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And that was speaking right to what was on Nicodemus' heart. He knew what was in man. And verse 2 and verse 3 demonstrate Jesus' knowledge of exactly what Nicodemus needed to hear. I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges is hearing that statement from Nicodemus' perspective. So that's what I want to do. We're going to talk more about what it means to be born again and why we need that and who does that next week. But today I want you to hear Jesus' statement with Nicodemus' ears. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God is something Nicodemus would have been familiar with. You can read about the kingdom all the way through the Old Testament. The promise was that a son of David would come, he would establish a kingdom in Jerusalem, and he would rule and reign there with all the Old Testament saints, and he would rule and he would reign forever. That was what the Old Testament prophets promised. That's what the Old Testament prophets predicted. That is what every Jew at the time of Jesus expected. And when they confessed him as king, they were expecting him to establish the kingdom. And even after his resurrection, they said to Jesus, is it now that you're going to set up the kingdom? And Jesus said to them, no, 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 you've misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. Jesus didn't say that. He said, the timing is what you are messed up on. It's not now, and it's not for you to know this. He will establish a kingdom, but it wasn't what he came to do at his first coming. Now, some people say all that the kingdom of God is is just a spiritual kingdom. There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. He rules and he reigns now. And the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom in that it's not of this world right here. But to say that the kingdom of heaven is merely spiritual does about as much justice to the idea of kingdom in both testaments as saying Jesus is a teacher does to the idea of who Jesus is. It's minimalistically true that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is that, but it's so much more. It will have a literal, physical manifestation in this world. There will be a kingdom. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you'll never see it. Nicodemus's hope and expectation was that that kingdom would come in his own lifetime. Every Orthodox, God-fearing Jew wanted the kingdom to be established in his own lifetime. Wanted the son of David to show up to overthrow Gentile rule and establish the kingdom of peace and prosperity, to rule and to reign with their Messiah forever. That's what they wanted. And that's what Nicodemus would have expected. When Jesus said, you're never going to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus understood him to mean, I'm never going to see salvation. I'm never going to see heaven. I'm never going to see the kingdom because the kingdom is not for the righteous or the unrighteous. It's for the righteous. And if I'm righteous, I'm going to be in the kingdom. And to be in the kingdom is to be righteous. And all the unrighteous will be outside of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you're never going to see that kingdom. You're never going to have heaven. You're never going to have salvation. 
You'll never rule and reign with the Messiah. You'll never be with the Messiah or the King, God on His throne, unless you are born again. Now, what would Nicodemus have expected Jesus to say? Remember the Pharisee answer? Nicodemus might have expected Jesus to say, Nicodemus, you are a ruler of the Jews. You have fastidiously studied all the Old Testament law and the prophets. You have memorized massive passages of the Old Testament. You know the law. You know the commentaries. You know the traditions. You know the requirements. You know all of that. You have done this from your youth. You have been trained. You have been a Pharisee. You have kept yourself pure. You have kept yourself righteous. Nicodemus, you have got it all going on. If anybody can hope to see the kingdom, Nick, it would be you. If anybody could hope to see the kingdom, it would be you. But is that what Jesus said? You must be born again. What? What about my law keeping? What about my righteousness? What about everything I've done? I mean, I have served God from my youth. I have fastidiously kept all the Old Testament law. I have kept the Ten Commandments. I've done everything in my power. I've kept myself pure. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a ruler Jew. Jesus, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. That's no small accomplishment. And in that one statement, verse 3, Jesus took all of Nicodemus's righteousness, swept it away. said, the key issue, Nicodemus, is not that you reform yourself. It's not keeping the law. It's not that you need a bigger idea of what the law is or a better idea of what the law is. Nicodemus, it's not that you just need to rein in a few of these nasty areas in your life. Your fundamental problem is that you must be born again. You must be born from above. See, the Pharisee thought that all of his righteousness meant something. The Pharisee's mindset is described by Paul in Philippians chapter 3. You remember it? If anybody has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was born of the, I was born circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees when it came to the law and the righteousness found in the law. I was blameless. When it came to zeal, I persecuted the church. In Paul's mind, all of the things that he had done as a Pharisee stacked up in his righteousness column. On his balance sheet, sir, Paul had sins and problems and these things that sort of weighed against him. But on the balance sheet before God, he had all of these things that counted for his righteousness. That's the way Nicodemus would have thought. And Jesus is essentially saying, your whole balance sheet has to go in the shredder. It doesn't matter that you have done all of these things. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. That was a radical idea to a Pharisee who thought that all of his righteousness came from the law keeping and from the things that he did for God. And Jesus is saying, you've got to start over. It's all for naught. It's meaningless. It's useless. Just um, about a month, five weeks ago or so, I had a conversation with a, a lady that I know who is um, uh, renting from a family member of mine, and I went down to talk with her. And uh, in the process of this conversation, she's an elderly lady, and she said to me, um, you know, I don't want to have to move out of here, move into a nursing home, because in the nursing homes, they'll kill you. And I'm afraid to die. And I don't want to die. And I said to her, why are you afraid to die? Do you know that you, where do you think you're going to go after you die? And she said, well, I, I think I think I'll go to heaven. I hope to go to heaven. But see, the fact that she's scared to die tells me that she really doesn't have the confidence that she's going to heaven. Because if you had the confidence that you're going to heaven, you'd want to die. And uh, so I said, well, 
let me give you a little test to see how you can, if you can know for certain that you're going to go to heaven. So I said, do you consider yourself to be a good person? She said, oh yeah, sure I do. Because see, every righteous man pronounces his own goodness, loves his own goodness. I said, well, let me give you a little test, ask you four questions to see if that's true. I took her through the law, and we've done that here before. Uh, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I've told a lie. What does that make you? A liar. you ever stolen anything? Yeah, I've stolen things. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever blasphemed God's name? Taken God's name in vain? She said, yeah, I have. So what does that make you? makes you a blasphemer. You've taken the God who gave you life and you've trampled it in the mud and used it as a, square, a four-letter curse word to express disgust. And God says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. I asked her if she'd ever disobeyed or dishonored her parents. She said she had and I walked her through those four things. I said, now based upon that, if God were to give you, um, judge you based upon those commandments and all I've done is take you through the Ten Commandments, we find you innocent or guilty. She said, guilty. So what should God do with you? Not what do you hope God does with you, but what should a just God do with you on that day? And she said, I guess he should send me to hell. And I said, you're right, he should, but do you know what God did so you wouldn't have to go to hell? She said, died on a cross? And I said, that's right. So I walked through the gospel and I explained to her, the justice of God requires that he send you to hell. The grace of God has provided a substitute for you so that he doesn't have to send you to hell. But do you know what you have to do to receive that forgiveness? She said, no, I don't. I said, it's repentance and faith. You have to turn from your sin, and you have to believe on the one whom God sent to pay the price for your sin, your penalty for sin. I got to the end of it. I didn't, I didn't, you know, play just as I am and, and have her come forward and, and pray or check a box or anything. I said, you need to do business with God. You need to get down on your knees, and you need to pray, and you need to repent, and you need to call out to God for mercy and ask him to save you. I said, if you have not been born again, if you've not been given a new heart, you will not see heaven, and you will die in your sin, and you will perish. And I said, I'll be back in a little while, a few days, and we'll talk about what I've discussed here, but I want you to think about that. And I just left her with God. That's what evangelism is. You leave them with God. You do business with God. So I went down there yesterday, and I said, uh, have you been thinking about the things that we discussed last time about being afraid to die? She said, well, I've given it some thought, and I'm not afraid to die anymore. And I said, why not? And I kind of little butterfly in my stomach thinking, oh, this is good. And I said, why not? Why, why are you not afraid to die? Well, because I've been going to church, and we believe that after you die, you sort of pass through the veil, and there you're giving two choices. You choose heaven, or you choose hell. And I said, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you die, you have no choice after that. You're going to go to one of two places. You're either going to go to hell and be punished for the sins that you've committed, or you're going to go to heaven because somebody else was punished on your behalf. Somebody else died as a substitute. So I said, do you remember what I told you you need to do? You need to repent and believe that, the message, and believe and trust in Jesus to save you. Because I talked about the justice last time. The only payment for sin that is sufficient to save you is the payment that's been made in Jesus. And if you don't embrace that payment by faith, then there is no other payment. You can't pay for your own sins. And then she said, in all of my life, there's just one vice that I have not been able to get, my, uh, get control of and conquer. Smoking. And I said, I don't believe that smoking in and of itself is sinful. It's foolish, it's stupid, but it's not in and of itself sinful. What's going to damn you is not your smoking. It's your lying, your blasphemy, your disobedience to your parents, your lust, your hatred, your idolatry, and your violation of all the commandments of God. That is what is going to damn you. The smoking is incidental to all of the rest of those violations. I said, still today, you must be born again. What you need, and this is what I told her, 
What you need is not a reformation. It's not to simply reform areas of your life. What you need is to be born again, to be given a new heart and a new life. And the question is, how does that happen? That's the question that Nicodemus asks for next week in verse 4. How can this be? How does this happen? And I'll give you the brief answer to it today. It's a work of God. It happens when you finally get downwind of yourself and smell your sin for what it is in the eyes of God. And you turn from that and you hate it and you're given a new life and a new drive. You turn from that sin and you trust the one who died for you. And you call out to mercy and you cry out to God to be given a new heart with new desires and affection. And when you repent, you believe on Christ and you place your faith in him. Then you become a new creation and you're born again. And that faith and that new birth happen simultaneously, instantaneously together. They are one and the same thing. It is my faith that causes me to be born again, and in being born again, my first action is to place my faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. They're instantaneous. And that's what new birth is. Now we have to stop there, because we don't have time to go into what regeneration is, but next week we're going to look at the universal need for regeneration and how regeneration takes place. Now friends, I'll tell you this, if there's somebody sitting here today who has never repented of their sin and trusted Christ for salvation, and you're trusting in your baptism, in what your parents did, in the fact that your parents were believers, in some work that you've done, in your ability to keep the law, in your ability to make yourself righteous, reform your life, make yourself better, any of those things, if you're trusting in any of those things, you're lost. And you are as lost as lost can be. You must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the blessing of your grace and your goodness in Christ. Thank you for reminding us again of how holy you are and how gracious you are in providing for us the very thing which we need. We need new birth. We need to be made a new creation, a new creature in Christ. And that is the very thing that you provide by grace through faith. Thank you that you're good and thank you that you will never turn away all those who come to you, who come to Christ in faith, believing in him. We entrust ourselves to you and thank you for the blessing that it is to gather together here today as your people and be reminded of these very simple things. It is in Jesus' name that we praise you, that we honor you, that we love you, and that we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.